Well, we're coming towards the, the end of this journey through Hebrews. It's been a long one, hasn't it? But it's, it's been good. And it's been good as well to hear those others, others who, uh, over the, not last week, but the previous four weeks to that, bought um, their perspective on chapter 11. But we move this morning into chapter 12. And then next week, Sean will finish off Hebrews in chapter 13. So we're, we're going to deal with chapter 12 today. So let's open our Bibles at Hebrews in chapter 12. And we'll start where Pat left off a couple of weeks ago, verse 1 to 3. Therefore, since we're so, we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We're presented here with a picture of a race surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, a great audience. Think back a couple of years, 18 months ago, to the Olympics. Remember, who watched the Olympics? Everyone watch it? Most people saw at least some of it. The stadium there in East London and the, and the track, running track and, and all the, the audience filled out because only the privileged could get tickets. <laughs> and there we have the runners lined up for the race and the great cloud of witnesses watching it. That's the picture that's being summed up here. We're the athletes. It's time to run the race And all those who have gone before us stand and cheer in the stands, cheering us on. Up there to the left, can you see him? It's Moses. There at the front, somewhere, is Jeremiah. (laughs) I didn't know who to pick on for Jeremiah. (laughs) In the royal box over there, there's King David. And up ahead of us, at the end of the track, looking down and watching us, is Jesus, our coach our mentor, the author and perfecter of our faith. The writer tells us to fix our eyes on him, that we will run a race that's straight and true. I've got a little video clip to show at this point, um, if you'll just bear with me a moment. Watch this guy over to the left. He didn't seem to care less about the encumbrances that were in the way as he ran, did he? (laughs) The hurdles were just there to run straight through. Um, But the writer of of this particular passage is saying, get the encumbrances out of the way. Get that which is going to stop you running a straight race out of, the, out of the way. Don't just try and run through it and trip over and fall all over the track. Get out of the way everything that's going to stop you running a straight race. He says, fix your eyes on Jesus. He says, 
lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and run with endurance the race set before us. Get it out of the way. Get the sin out of the way. Get the stuff out of the way that's blocking you from being the best you can and, and running the race as straight as you can, fixing your eyes on Jesus. Everything that's in the way, get it out of the way. That's what he's saying. Lay aside everything that's going to get in the way of us competing the race that he set before us. And he particularly picks out sin as an issue. Who knows that if we have secret sin in our lives, it holds us back spiritually. You may appear okay on the outside. You may go to all the meetings, pray all the prayers, sing the songs, do everything that's expected of you. But if you're holding on to sin in here, or it's holding on to you, you know that you won't grow, that you won't be all you were meant to be. The writer says, lay it all aside. In other words, stop it. Stop now. Just concentrate on running the race God's given you to run. Fix your eyes on Jesus, who's at the end of the track, waiting for you to make it home. Next he tells us, That Jesus is not only our coach, he's also our example. He had his own race to run, and his goal was the throne. To be returned to that place of glory, having won our salvation for us through the cross. But having his eyes set on that target, he was able to endure the pain and suffering and shame along the way. He says, it was for the joy that was set before him. He could see the target, he could see the goal, which was his return to glory, with a host of captives, us, set free from the power of sin and death. For that joy, he was able to endure, go through the suffering and the shame and the despising and everything else that came his way. The expectation of achieving the goal spurred him on, enabled him to endure. And in the same way, it's by keeping our eyes on Jesus and on our eternal hope that we can and will endure what comes against us now. Listen, the race isn't always easy. There are sometimes some hard things to endure along the way. Most of us may not be here called to suffer persecution like the people we heard about last week. But we may suffer rejection by friends and family. We may be disadvantaged in our job prospects. We may not achieve the material prosperity of others. But the message of Hebrews is this, that it's all worth it. Why? Because, as David told us a few weeks ago, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. It's a better way of being. It's a better way of living. It's got a better hope and it's got a better result. Choose Jesus. Let's come to verse 4. You've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. You've forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you're reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It's for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as much uh, as with sons, For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? 
But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. I prefer the way the King James says it, but we won't go there. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more subject to the the father, the spirits, um, to be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time and seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness. Everyone heard anyone preach a sermon on that passage? Those the Lord loves, he disciplines. Let's celebrate that this morning. <laughs> the Lord gives us a good smack bottom. Isn't it good? That's right up there, isn't it? In words of encouragement. It's a less comfortable section of the epistle. One that's not often preached about. And even less popular. It's a discussion concerning the discipline of God. I want to show you another short video clip of somebody who perhaps... He's not quite so disciplined, not been brought up with that discipline. The story is, it's a girl's 18th, 16th birthday, I think, and her mum has just bought her a car for her birthday. I apologise in advance for the, la- the ending of this clip. When I was 16, my parents finally let me out of the basement. When Audrey turned 16, her mother bought her a Lexus. Then MTV built a show around it and made the world hate her. What? Happy birthday! That's yours. What the hell? I don't want my car now. Well, I'm going my car now. I told her not to get out. I wanted to get my party. I didn't want the car. I not even the car you wanted. Oh, but she's such an idiot. I, she just ruined the whole party. Everything. She just ruined everything. Party's off. Okay, you ruined my life. I hate you. We're leaving. The party's off. I'm taking Audrey's side on this one. Her mom's a bitch and did ruin the party. I think it illustrates the point where somebody has been spoiled, doesn't it? Again, I apologise for that closing sequence, but it, it does illustrate the point. Our society is in a crisis of discipline. Most of us don't know what we can and cannot do anymore. In this area, it's a nightmare for teachers. And I'm not here just talking about smacking or about corporal punishment. I'm talking about shaping character through applying appropriate encouragements and restraints, so that children know there are both rewards and consequences for behaviour of various sorts. Also, so that they know where the boundaries lie. Tom Wright said this, Spoilt children on the one hand and ignored children on the other are a menace and a nuisance to everyone else and are unlikely to grow up as happy, well-rounded characters, able to sustain a normal adult life. Clearly, some kind of discipline, as one aspect of genuine love and care, is vital. In other words, we all need discipline. Anyone not need discipline? Anyone's perfect without it? (laughs) Joy, you're the example for us all, obviously. (laughs) 
And the writer to the Hebrews says that the fathering of God is no different. God has a desire for us to come to maturity, to be well-rounded, wholesome, well-developed in our character kind of people. And in context, the writer is saying that the difficult things we encounter in life are one of the ways God disciplines us. Now hear me right on this, I just want to qualify that for a moment. It doesn't mean we should go around thinking that whenever something goes wrong, God has brought it upon us. That's not what he's saying. God is not mean, and neither does he just play with us. However, challenging things in life can deepen our faith in him and push us back into God, so that our character is shaped a little more into his image. You see, bad things happen to good people. And the challenge for each one of us is how we handle it, how we deal with it. Because we can deal with it in one way and become negative and bitter and resentful. Or we can deal with it another and become faithful and hopeful and positive. It's not what happens to us that's the important thing. It's how we deal with it and what the effect it has, the outcome of our character. However, just going back to the context of this book, you'll remember that Jewish, it was about Jewish Christians slipping back into Judaism. They were going back into their old beliefs. And the scriptures the writer uses are to remind them that God allowed things to come upon the people of God when they were in rebellion against him to cause them to turn from their idolatry so that his judgment would not fall upon them. And he told them this repeatedly through the prophets And they wouldn't listen. In other words, the people of Israel from David onwards were slipping into idolatry. And Jesus, the Father, allowed things to come against them in order to remind them that he was their God and for them to come back to him. And that was ultimately so that the judgment that was going to be the long-term consequence, i.e. being taken out of the land, would not come upon them. He didn't want them to experience that judgment. So he sent things and allowed things to bring them back from the edge before they got there. But in the end, they were just too disobedient and went. And he he removed them from the land because that was the judgment that had been proclaimed. And God doesn't want to judge any one of us. He doesn't want to bring bad things on us. But if we embrace him and walk with him when we're in rebellion, he will allow things to come against us in order to turn us back to him. That our faith might go deeper. That our love might be increased. That our appreciation of his grace might be um, extended and that we can come and be more what he's called us to be. So the writer is telling us that if we stray or if we're tempted to slip back into our old life, God will use the circumstances of life to discipline us in order to bring us back to him. And that isn't being nasty on God's behalf. It's the proof of the fact that he loves us. It's only a a parent who doesn't really love their child who won't discipline them because they're more in love with themselves than with the child. True love will bring discipline because it knows the best outcome for the child is out of both love and discipline. And that's what he's saying. God's proof of his love for us is that he's prepared to go the difficult journey with us in order to bring us back to himself. It's the proof of his love. He 
says, none of us liked discipline at the time, but it's good for us. And we should be thankful that God loves us so much that he doesn't want us to mess up our lives, but will discipline us so that we will walk in the right way. So, do you want to avoid, uh, avoid discipline? Do you want to avoid God's smack bottom? Do good and don't sin. Simple, isn't it? Set your face on Jesus and keep running the race towards him. Then he gives us an example. Let's come to verse 12. Therefore strengthen the hands of the weak and the knees of the feeble. Make straight paths for your feet so that the lame, the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many, uh, men, many be defiled. That there, is no, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. And here the writer is encouraging us in the same vein, Firstly, to keep our arms and legs strong and to walk in the grace of God. But then he gives us the example of Esau. And this example sums up the whole of the passage up until this point. And essentially, the writer is reminding us of what happened with Esau to help us get our perspective right. Do you remember Esau? Isaac had two sons. One was strong, athletic, loved hunting. The other was... A mummy's boy. Very much on his mum's apron strings. And one day, Esau goes out, being the man, strong, red-faced, because that's what his name means, ruddy man. He's out there, he's with his bow and arrow, and he's hunting all day, and he comes back and he's famished. And of course, where do we find Jacob? He's in the kitchen cooking with his mum. And he's making himself a stew. And Jacob, Esau says to him, God, I'm so hungry. I could eat, I could eat an elephant. Give us some of your stew. And of course, Jacob tricks Esau to the last, says, well, I'll give you some of my stew, but you've got to give me your birthright first. Now, what did that mean? Basically, he was asking him to give up his first place in the inheritance that Isaac had for them both. He was asking him, if you will trade your future, I can give you what will sustain you now. And Esau said, well, what's the point in having a future if I'm going to die of starvation right now? Of course he wasn't going to die of starvation. And he despised it. His perspective was wrong. He gave up his future for a bowl of stew. Jesus, sorry, Esau sacrificed his inheritance for the sake of a bowl of stew. He was willing to trade his future, his destiny, for the sake of short-term gain. Now, I believe this is the condition of many Western Christians. They're prepared to sacrifice that which is of eternal worth in pursuit of material gain. They put career, house, possessions, 
all before the kingdom of God. They sacrificed the daily blessing and grace of God in their lives in exchange for personal pleasure and indulgence. Not that we're all called to wear hair shirts and flagellate ourselves, but we are supposed to exercise the basic Christian disciplines of prayer and Bible reading. It's easy to pursue personal comfort and satisfaction. Another ten minutes in bed, just one more TV program, that personal indulgence in in place of time with God. We all do it, and there's nothing wrong with those things. But if we allow them to get in the way of our Christian disciplines, we're trading our destiny for a bowl of stew. Everybody in this room has a destiny in God. You have a future. You have gifting. You have things that God has appointed for you to do. Now you can live your life now, day by day, just living for your personal satisfaction and fulfillment. Or you can think about your your destiny that God has assigned for you. And you have a choice. I have a choice. And the choices I make every day are the choices to pursue my destiny or to satisfy myself. And sometimes I get it right and sometimes I get it wrong. But God has something greater for each one of us. But it's about making those choices in the small things that release the big things that God has for us. Who wants to fulfill their destiny in God? Who wants to see themselves set free from the encumbrances of this life and see them doing something that will make a difference in this world? We have choices to make. Don't trade your destiny for a bowl of stew. Don't trade what God has for you. And just forget about the eternal side. Because you're getting by with the personal indulgence. Spending time with God regularly, there's no substitute for it. And if you want your personal spiritual life to grow... You'll do it. If you don't, you won't. And it's as simple as that. No wonder the Western church is weak. We've thrown the baby out with the bathwater. In avoiding being too religious or legalistic, we've neglected the basics. Back in the 70s and 80s, there was a reaction in the church, particularly in the evangelical church, about being too regimented, too religious. You don't need to go to church every Sunday. You don't need to be so keen on personal disciplines. Just relax. Go with the flow. Let the spirit lead. Feel so much easier and better this way. And the result is a weak and ineffective church. Now, I don't want to go back to the days of Sunday Sabbath observance. When I was a kid, we weren't allowed to play out. We had to wear our best clothes on Sunday. For Carolyn, it was a lot more disciplined. She wasn't allowed to watch television or read any books except Christian books on a Sunday. We don't want to return to those religious days. (laughs) But neither do we want to go to the other extreme and just think nothing matters anymore. God loves me. I can just go with the flow. There is a, a middle line. And it's about disciplining my life to walk as appropriately as a Christian. And setting myself to spend time with God and allow God's spirit to come to me and change me and transform me and lead me and to develop that relationship with him that will sustain me in the week and and in all the the days and, and all the places I go. 
I want an effective, committed church. Not just us, nationally. But especially us. When we go to India, we don't see half-hearted Christians. We see Christians who are 100% committed. Every minute of the day. And it puts us to shame. They have a desire to see people saved. They have a desire to live their lives every minute as if every minute was their last. And we're so compromised. Somewhere along the way we've lost that total commitment to God and his church that makes the difference. And we need to be a people who are passionate, committed and urgent. Instead of half-hearted, lackadaisical and self-indulgent. It's time to turn again and to strengthen the weak limbs, as the writer says, by waiting on God and lying aside every encumbrance. It's time to rise up and be the church of Jesus Christ that we're called to be. Anyone with me this morning? And that's the challenge that he's laying before us as he gives this example of Esau. We can be like Esau. We traded his destiny. For immediate satisfaction. Or we can be like Jesus. Who for the sake of the goal. The joy set before him. Endured the cross despising its shame. Let's come now to start rounding this up. Verse 18. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched. And to a blazing fire. And to darkness, and to gloom and whirlwind, and to the blast of trumpet, and the sound of words which sound uh, was such that those who heard and uh, begged that they no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I'm full of fear and trembling. All of that, of course, is an allu- um, allusion to... Um, <coughs> Mount Sinai, where the Ten Commandments were given and where there was fire and smoke and earthquake and noise and the people were told, don't even touch the mountain because you won't survive if you do. But, verse 22, you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, and to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. We're not come to a mountain where we have to hear the voice of God that shakes the earth. We've come to a better place. Why? Jesus is better. We've come to a place where we're rejoicing in the goodness and the salvation of God. We've come to a place where God's presence dwells amongst his people. We don't have to wait for it to come down the mountain. It's here. We've come to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of God, which Abraham was always pursuing, which is the people of God, the angels, and Jesus himself in in our midst as our great mediator. And at the end of this section, the writer contrasts the blood of Jesus with that of Abel. What does this mean? Remember, Abel was killed by his brother Cain as the first murder, and his blood was shed on the ground. 
and is demonstrating that while Abel's innocent blood was shed resulting in violence and judgment, Jesus' innocent blood was shed resulting in full pardon and cleansing for you and I. Jesus' blood has set us free from the consequences of sin and judgment and death. And set us free to be part of the kingdom of heaven that is here now and is coming in great glory. Jesus is better. Verse 25. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth. Then, then, but what now he has promised, saying, yet once more I'll shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken, as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And in this last section... The writer is once more contrasting Sinai, where the mountain shook, with the kingdom of God, which cannot be shaken. And he refers to the fact that a time is coming when God is going to shake both heaven and earth. That time is coming. And this is at the time when ultimately the new heavens and the new earth will be revealed. The good news is that God's kingdom will not be shaken. And God's kingdom is made up of you and I. And we will endure into the fullness of all that God has for us in the future. And when the temporal has passed away and eternity has come to earth, we will be there in the midst rejoicing with our saviour, with our mediator, with our God and with our king. Because we're part of a kingdom that will endure all things. Where would you want to invest, in the temporal or the eternal? In the immediate or in that which will last forever? Hallelujah. And he says that the result of that should be gratitude, awe, worship, service. That's the appropriate response. In the meantime, we love as those who are now full of gratitude for all that God has done, is doing and will do through us. And it's that gratitude that should inspire us to offer to him ourselves as a sacrifice of service with reverence and awe. In other words, the goodness of God should inspire us to live our daily lives as an act of worship to him. And there the writer brings it to a conclusion before coming to his final words, which will look at, or you will, next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we have a kingdom that cannot be shaken, that we're part of it. And I pray, Lord God, for each one of us that you'll work in our hearts, that, Lord God, the encumbrances that that stop us running the race straight may be put aside. That, Lord God, the constant um, emphasis on the immediate might be put aside for an eternal perspective. And I pray, Lord God, for a release of destiny in this room today. That, Lord God, those who have laid aside their destiny up until this moment will catch hold of it and will grab it with two hands and will pursue it with their whole hearts. That, Lord God, you will do great things and mighty things through your people in this place. In Jesus' name. Amen.